0: Good morning to all of you. Good to see all of you. I just want to say briefly concerning Elena, uh, if I'm able to. Uh, Elena has been a member of this class from its inception. So she's been a member of this class as long as my wife and I, along with Brother Jesse and a few others. So uh, she uh, was indeed a wonderful friend of ours. And so it's very difficult for me now to, uh, to speak, but uh, by God's grace, I hope to do so. She loved Jesus Christ. Um, she loved people. She loved this church. She loved her family. And it's certainly mixed emotions for me. But uh, one thing that I rejoice about, though, is that uh, she's with the Lord now and uh she's free from sin you know uh, i've been reading about that this past week that's an amazing thing to think about Uh, as long as we live in this earth we will never reach that state no matter how diligently we are in pursuing christ we will never attain to the state of being free from sin but she is at this very moment. And so we rejoice over that. Another thing I want to say is because of her and Brother Jesse and along with the uh, the International Friends group and those who participate, that this class was actually begun. Um, Rocky wanted to, along with the starting of that class, Rocky wanted to uh, have a place for those who attended that may not have been members of this church to go and to uh, be able to be a part of. And so as a result of all of that, this church, I mean this uh, class came into being. So I was certainly honored to be asked to, to teach it. And I'm so glad that Now, Jordan is a part of that team and along with Brother Mike. So, anyway, we will continue to pray for Brother Jesse as well as the entire family. Elena was uh, a great evangelist. Uh, She loved her family. And as uh, Jordan mentioned earlier, many are in the Roman Catholic Church, and so... uh, it was a great burden on her heart to, uh, to pray for her family and to, as she had opportunity, to share the gospel with them. So we can uh, continue that by praying for them as well, praying for those that she loved and shared the gospel with, that uh, God would, change their hearts, that he would remove the heart of stone and uh, replace it with a heart of flesh and also place his spirit within them to regenerate their hearts that they may repent and believe in the true gospel that they may be saved. So, we will move forward by God's grace. Oh, sorry, Today, we continue our study in the letter of Paul to the Colossians, and I think it's been a wonderful study so far. I've learned so much, and uh, I've been so convicted by the truths of this wonderful letter, and I was highly convicted this past week as well during my study. So I'm glad I'm able to stand up here this morning and to to uh, do the best I can in terms of trying to present it to you. Our study last week began a tradition I mean a transitional section in the letter. We finished up chapter two, which was theological. It was Christological. Christ is highly exalted in that in those chapters verses one, uh, chapters one and two. And we learn a lot about him, who he is, his person. And we learn about his saving grace. And, uh, but Paul doesn't only let us know about theology, but he also teaches us how to live it out. Because in the context of that, we see that those whom God has chosen to believe in him and those whom he has chosen to be saved and those whom he saves. He doesn't only talk about their position now in Christ and who they are, their identity with Christ, that they have a heavenly citizenship, but also he wants to provide instructions on how to live as a result of that. And that's what we're all striving to do. We're trying to live out our identity, really. You know, we are... Our identity is with Christ. We are identified with him. And Paul, as as well as Christ himself and our father, God, wants us to live out our true identity in terms of who he has made us to be. This is absolutely an amazing concept. To live out who we are, or as some writers put it, to become who we are. To become practically who we are positionally. We have a very high exalted position because we are in Christ. We're united with him. We are spiritually in heaven. Spiritually, not physically, obviously. But spiritually, we are in heaven because, because we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And that's where he's seated. So we're with him in that regard. But sin still remains. Sin still remains in us. And so we still have a propensity to sin. And that's what our lesson is about today. Now you may notice if you have read verse 5 that he talks about sexual sins. And you may wonder why he talks about that so early in the practical aspect of his teaching or his writing there. But you must remember that the ancient society of his time, promiscuity and sexual immorality was rampant. And it did not matter um, who the person was or what kind of person they were it was basically unrestrained, unrestricted. I understand that venereal disease was rampant. It's almost like our society today. There's really no different, not much difference in the way they lived in our society today. But anyway, that's, that's the way they lived. And so Paul recognized that many of those who were being saved came out of a pagan background, a Gentile background, where this type of activity was commonplace. It was commonplace. So Paul was concerned about them going back into that. And so he writes, he wrote as he does here. So to begin, I just want to read the first nine, or actually seven verses of this Third chapter. So if you would turn to Colossians chapter 3, and we'll read the first seven verses. He says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, that is, you have been regenerated, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above not on the things that are upon earth or on earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, when you, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. As we begin our study into this passage, I would like to point out something as it relates to verse 5. Now, I love the New American Standard version of the Bible, and perhaps many of you love it as well. But I think in verse 5, they, they don't do such a good job of translating that passage, especially one of the words there. The, one of the key words, in fact, the key word in this passage is put to death. And we don't see that here. It says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. But that's not really what the original text says. It does not say consider as dead here. It does say that in Romans 8, 11, I think it is. But it doesn't say that here. It actually says put to death. That is to kill, to slay. The slay, the members on the earth. The word your is not there either upon the earth. And I think what he's referring to here is to put to death these terms or the aspect of these terms here. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. In spite of our lofty position with Christ, in spite of all the work that God has done in us to transform us, sin still remains. Sin remains within us as well as outside of us. We do have a new nature, but there's remaining sin that has not been yet redeemed. And that's why we await the coming of Christ. That will take place at that time. We have been justified... We've been reconciled, we've been adopted, we've been positionally sanctified, and all of those good things that relates to our salvation. But we are still sinners. Remaining sin is still present. We have died to sin because of our union with Christ. But sin is still alive and well. And it's something that we have to deal with. We have to deal with it on a daily, daily basis. And that's what Paul is calling us to do in this passage. You know, the, the, first, the first vice, if you will, on this list is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. And Paul, if you notice, he has a, a sequence here. He goes from the actual physical action, back to the source of this. He goes from the act to the source, the real cause of this immorality. So that's the progression. It, it, it actually goes backwards in terms of the list, but it, it has to do with primarily the root of it is idolatry. Idolatry is the root of Immorality, as well as maybe all sins, idolatry is the root of sin because we take God's place. We exalt ourselves above God. We become our own sovereign and not acknowledge him as our sovereign. So what is immorality? It's an unlawful sexual intercourse. That's what it is. Prostitution some of the lexicons say, unchastity, fornication. And it actually refers to the physical act. And so that's why Paul begins here, because of the rampant immorality in his time, in the, the historical culture. And I point out at the beginning here, all immorality is outside The legal bounds of marriage. It is outside the legal bounds of marriage. And also I want to say that there's only one context that God approves and God allows for sexual activity to take place. That's between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. That's it. God does not tolerate sexual activity in any other context except that one. But that's foreign to them. When they probably read this letter, those to whom it was originally written to were probably stunned. They were dumbfounded to read something like this because they were free to do any way they wanted to in this regard. So Paul is saying here that the only context in which sexual activity is allowed, or is not off limits, is between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And this harkens back to a definitive statement that goes all the way back to Genesis. As I was reading this, I I thought about this verse and what God said, even at the beginning. You know, it's amazing the wisdom of our God. It's amazing the wisdom that God has in terms of, teaching us and you're familiar with this verse it's in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 and this is shortly after God had made the woman and he brought her to the man You, you know all about this and notice what he says in verse 24 for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh This is the only context that God allows without judgment, if a person continues in it, sexual activity to take place between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. This is the universal uh, timeless principle regarding marriage right here. It's universal, which means it covers the whole globe in terms of humanity, and it's timeless, it's ageless. It does not change. The society all around us changes in terms of behavior and thinking and activity and those kinds of things. But God's word is timeless. It's ageless. What it said last, way back in, beginning of, in the beginning, it still is, is the same today. Why is that true? Because of the source of it. The source of God's word is God himself. And one of the attributes of God is that he does not change. He does not change. And that what proceeds from him is is like him. His word, therefore, does not change either. So immorality is the actual act. But immorality just does not happen unless something leads up to that. For example, a man and a woman is not usually in a happy marriage. And all of a sudden everything breaks off now this could happen but that's not generally the case there's a lot that's going on within a person prior to this and that brings us to the next word the next word is the word impurity impurity just simply means unclean it's from the word catharsis and What they did, they put an A in front of it, which means clean. Catharsis means clean. And they put an A in front of it, which negates it and makes it unclean. So the word simply means unclean or impure thoughts. That's a good way to translate it, impure thoughts. And that is the position of a person that precedes the actual act, the impure thoughts. And so that is preceded by what's the word, the next word, which is passion. Passion. And this term indicates a drive or force which does not rest until it is satisfied. It's it's, It's like an inflamed term, an inflamed concept, like a spark in a dry place where, there's, where the, there's been no rain and the grass has dried up and withered and the wind is blowing and a spark comes along and ignites it. It's very difficult for even very well-trained firemen to put it out. And so this is the concept that's behind the word Im- immorality. But it's leading up to it. It's passion. It's an impure thought. It's, it has to do with the thinking of a person. It has to do with an unclean mind. An unclean mind. Well, that's impurity. And the passion inflames that imp- impure mind or unclean mind, and it leads to immoral action. Immoral action. And that's where Im- immorality comes from. The next term is evil desire. Evil desire. And Paul is commanding the word that's translated put to death. This is actually a command. It is a command. So Paul is commanding us to put these things to death. We can look at them individually. Put immorality to death. Put impurity to death. Put passion to death. Put evil desire to death. Put greed to death. So we'll be killing those things. So God has called us into a war. A battle. From the time we were justified. And positioned of sanctified. Until we're glorified. We'll be fighting this battle. It's not going to go away. It's relentless. And we'll be fighting it. But we'll seek God's grace to enable us to endure through the battle. Evil desire is lust. Lust is something that's deep within us. James talks about it. Let's look at James chapter 1 verses 13 through 15. And we will see that it's, it's there. It's just who we are. It's just there. We can't do anything about it but put it to death when it rears up to cause us to, to sin, to want to sin. Verse 13 says, let, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Why? For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Notice it ascribes it to the individual, his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it give, gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So lust inflames passion. And then the passion ignites the dirty mind or the unclean or impure mind and that leads to the actual act of immorality so now we're about to get to the real root of this greed he also says which is idolatry greed is insatiable selfishness unsatisfied or unsatisfying selfishness It's an insatiable desire for more. It's also translated covetousness in some versions. But it's from the same word, pleo nexane. Pleo means more, nexane means to have. I have to have more. I am not satisfied with what God has given me. As much as God has blessed me, as much as God has blessed us, we can sometimes be greedy, we will want more. There's a danger in that, there's a danger in being greedy. There's, I don't think there's anything wrong with sometimes maybe wanting more, but it depends on how we want to go about that and the effect that it will have on us, as well as our family and those who are part of our inner circle. And Paul is commanding us here to put it to death. Put it to death. I think greed springs from discontentment. We're discontent with what God has given us. We have this desire for more, and we think we deserve more. And I think this has to do with uh, how we view God and how we view ourselves. When we view God in the wrong way and place ourselves before him, I'm speaking of idolatry now, which greed is. It's a form of idolatry. We we, We look at ourselves as perhaps wiser than God or smarter than God and think that we are the ones to determine our state or our status in this world. But it can be a danger if we want to desire more. I think this is one of the reasons why Lucifer fell. He wanted what didn't belong to him. That's what being greedy is. Greedy is desiring with an insatiable desire something that doesn't belong to us. Something that God has determined, at least for now, to be off limits to us. But we still want it. And if we continue to focus on it, and to think about it, that I should have that, then we are in a dangerous position. That is why it is necessary to be putting it to death. We must kill it. We must cut it off at the root. And the root, I believe, of all sin, is idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping something other than God. It could be ourself, it could be money. It could be fame, it could be position, and many other things. But it's something other than the true God. That's idolatry. And I think idolatry is at the root of perhaps, if not all sins, most sins. Even in the garden, when you think about it, and I was thinking about that this week, God had told Adam that everything that's in this garden is available to you, except the fruit of one tree. Just that one tree. Can you imagine what he had access to? But because of, of the enticement of the evil one, the devil, at that time, he was led to think that there was God was being unfair to him. And that's usually, I think, in many cases the case. We're thinking that God has holding something back from me that I desire and I think because of who I think I am, I should have it. And so as a result of that, sometimes we will go out of our way to get it. And as a result, we will fall into sin. It is a desire to have something that we are not entitled to. And it's like... um, The Greeks say like a bowl that has a hole in the bottom when you're trying to fill it. The water just keeps running out. I remember this is a, uh, I I thought about this. I remember my son and I went down to Fairfield. I knew a man down there that I worked with, actually. And uh, he had some property on a lake. And the lake was named after him. And he had a boat on that lake, and he gave me ready access to his house there on the lake, as well as his boat. But he didn't really use his boat that often, and so the boat was aging. And as, as a result of the aging of it, it had sprung a leak. And uh, it was in the water. He had a little shelter there and a little ramp that he, had to, that, that he could walk out and fish on the lake. And the boat had sprung a leak And so it had water in it. And so my son and I said, well, you know, um, let's see if we can dip the water out. We started dipping, and we would lower the level a little bit, but it would continue to rise. And that's the way greed is. Greed is that same way. You can never get enough. If you're greedy, you will never get enough. And that will ultimately lead to sin. Every sin I believe is from covetousness, covetousness, desiring more, desiring more. Matthew five twenty seven says and twenty eight say this it says that um, Matthew five verse twenty seven. Regarding adultery, it says, "You have you not heard that it it was said that you shall not commit adultery? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in in his heart." So adultery begins at the thought level, at the heart level, as immorality does. So where should we begin killing sin? Where should we begin? And I think that's why this is so important here, because not only does Paul numerate some of the sins, obviously this list is is not exhaustive, but he lets us know where the root is. And if you really want to slay something, you slay it where? At the root level. At the root level. So if we have the right view of God, and we have the right view of ourselves, then we will recognize who God is and his wisdom and his goodness and his provisions for all of our needs that he will take care of us. Then we will have the ability, I believe, to slay the sin or the cause of the sin at the right level, at the root level. And if we can do it there, then we can cut it off at the right place. So that's the process of killing that particular aspect of sin. But I think this carries over into all aspects of sin. If we can determine the root level, we can slay it at that point. This is not limited to these sins. There are so many other sins that we are to be putting to death. We are to be killing, not coddling, not waiting. It's an action that we want to do now. The second point on this outline is the reason, one of the reasons for slaying sin. Here's one of the reasons. Oh, before we get to that, let me read a, another verse that I, a passage that I wrote down here that I want to read. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses beginning in verse 3. Ephesians chapter 5, I think it really helps us here. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. You know, the book of uh, Colossians and the book of Ephesians uh, are similar in in many respects. In fact, I think Paul was in the same place when he wrote each one of them. But they're not exactly the same, but they're similar. So Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. He says, but immorality or any impurity or greed. Do you see some of our words there? We see at least three of them, right? They're right here. Must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk, a coarse jesting, which are not fitting, is inappropriate, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, That no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, he's not talking about wrath right here, but he's saying that a person who continues in these sins will have no place in the kingdom of Christ and of God. This is serious. He goes on to say, let no one deceive you, in verse 6, with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God. God's settled anger and intention to punish. And he will do it at the proper time if individuals persist in sins that he has forbidden. Again, Roman numeral two says, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Verses six and seven, he says, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them, you also once walked when you were living in them. So he gives two reasons here why we should be putting These sins, along with other sins, to death. The wrath of God will come. This provides us for, this provides a reason for us to be proactively killing sin, especially sexual sin and all sins. We know that participating in such sins will have a devastating and disrupting effect on our lives in various ways, it affects the family. It affects friends. It affects so many people that we know and that who are part of our lives. That's what it does. But ultimately, if it's continued, it will lead to God's judgment and his wrath. So that's the reason to be killing it. Notice the verse again. He says, for it is because of these things. I think that these things refer back up to verse 5 where he lists those vices. It is because of these that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Because it's against God. It's contrary to God's character. It's contrary to who he is. And he has to judge it. God has to judge it. That's why I think it's so sad that the whole character of God is not taught. Uh, people know that God is love. He is. There's no question about that. God is love. But God is more than that. God is holy. God is just. The very character of God. Causes him to have to punish sin. He has to judge it. And he will judge it. Uh, And he has judged it for those who believe in Christ upon Christ. And all those who will believe in Christ, he has already judged it. But those who don't, they will have to suffer the consequences of their sin. So he will punish it. But you know the good news, though, is that God is so gracious that he will forgive the sinner Who repents. Is that good news? That's the gospel. God will forgive sins. That is absolutely amazing. I remember when uh, our youngest grandson was very young and uh, we used to have both of them, we have two over to a house, and my wife was teaching them verses. They went a honor at the church that they were attending, and so she was teaching them verses. And I can still hear it in my mind where the younger one remembered that my wife telling him, from I think it's first Timothy, that Christ came to save the sinners, that he came to save the sinners. And he did. He came to save the sinners. And that is good news. So God's judgment will come upon the sons of disobedience. And there's another reason not to participate in, in this sin. is because of Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are. And he's going to name them. And notice what has the list. Immorality, impurity. Sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, which implies that this list is not even exhaustive. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. That is, is, effeminate means the the, uh, passive one in the homosexual relationship. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we've already read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. The wrath of God will come on the sons of disobedience. Here's another reason not to participate and to be killing these sins. Letter B under Roman numeral 2. Christ saved us, them, out of these thins, These sins. We were saved out of sin. We were saved from sin. And we do not want to go back into it. And Paul is letting them know that. This provides the second reason. And this lifestyle was so rampant, was so prevalent in Colossae and other places in the world at that time. So they were familiar with this. When they read this verse, they knew what Paul was talking about. They knew that even some of them, perhaps many of them, had lived this way. And that shows again the power of the gospel to save no matter what lifestyle a person may be living in. The apostle had already reminded them that in their former lives, they were living in a state of enmity or hostility toward God but had now been reconciled to him through faith in Christ. Let's look at that in uh, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, and look at verses 21 and 23. I love this verse because of the amazing power of the gospel. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, Engaged in evil deeds. This kind of summarizes it. Yet in spite of all of that. He that is the magnificent Christ. Has now reconciled you. In his fleshly body through death. In order to present you before him. Holy and blameless. And beyond reproach. If indeed you continue. That is your salvation is real. In faith. Firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and to which I, Paul, was made a minister. As we go through this and continue on in our study of practical living, living out the salvation that God has given us, or living out our identity, our true identity in Christ, We will see more and more of the ways in which to do that. But we have one right here, I think, in the previous verses, in terms of how do we be putting sin to death. First of all, we starve it. We don't feed it. We don't feed the sins that are coming toward us. We starve them by being obedient to Christ. I think the second thing we do is that we are continually Focusing our minds on the things above. Look at um, verse 2 of, of chapter 3, the same chapter. He says, set your minds set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are upon the earth. Why? We die to those things. In uh, and, and, and verse uh, 20, go back to verse 20 of chapter 2. He says, if you have died... Uh, That's not the verse. I really want it. But we have died to those things. We died to the basic elements of this world. And he, he says it here. You have died and your life is now hidden in verse three. For you have died. You've been separated and your life is now hidden. With Christ in God. That's an amazing thing. That life, our real life, our true life, the eternal life that God has given us by his spirit because of what Christ has done on our behalf is hidden with Christ in God. But at the same time, we're still encouraged here to be living it out, to be living that life out. And so those are, I think, some of the reasons already where we see that we can be, uh, crucifying sin, of putting sin to death. Saturate our minds with Scripture. Saturate our minds with the Word of God. Keep focusing on what the Word of God says and how we are to live and to be seeking God's grace to help us to live obedient lives to those great truths based on now who we are and what God has done in us to enable us to do that. And I'll close with this verse. This is one of my favorite verses. In the whole Bible. It's in Ezekiel. Chapter 36. I believe. Ezekiel chapter 36. And a few verses. In that chapter. This is what will happen to the Israelites. When they are brought back out. Of their. Dispersion. He says verse 25. Then. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness. And from all your idols. Moreover I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. Within you. And cause you. To walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinance. This is regeneration. This is what God does to us when he saves us. He removes the heart of stone, the rebellious heart from us, and he gives us a more pliable heart that's more sensitive to God's truth. But he doesn't stop there. He also gives us his own Holy Spirit to enable us to live out the life that he is now given to us, to his glory, by his grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for the, your amazing grace. We thank you so much for your amazing love. Father, we thank you for choosing us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before you. In love, you predestined us to adoption as sons. And Father, you have fulfilled that but there's still more to come. And so we just thank you for your grace. Father, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. And I pray that you would give us the desire and the love to, to saturate our minds with it. That we would be filling our minds on an ongoing basis. That we will let the word of Christ richly dwell in us. In order that we will be putting to death the deeds of the flesh. We commend ourselves to you and to your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.